Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I, I want to try to sort of like um, address like a uh, just a, a big question in life, which is um, what do, what do you do uh, when you, when you don't know what to do? So that's <laughs> that's I don't know about you, but that's most of my life, you know. And <laughs> and, um, and where do you go when you don't know where to go? Um, and there's there's uh, this this question comes up in, in really in, in, in the deepest way in, in a critical moment in, in Moshe's life, in, in Moses' life, um, uh, along the path of, of trying to uh, do God's will and to, to take the Jews out of Egypt. And, um, and we're going to go over a, a number of different uh, commentators' answers, uh, explanations of sort of a very terse, somewhat cryptic passage in the Torah, which, which you'll see is like um, a, a, a big sort of like um, part of the story that, that, that doesn't get discussed too much. And, and there's, some, there's some, I think, very relevant life answers there uh, for us that, that, that we can learn as well. Um, and let's, uh, let's get to what, what, what happened exactly. So, so Hashem comes to Moshe in, in, at, the, at the burning bush. And the whole episode of the burning bush is, we, we talked about it a little bit last week, but, um, you know, I, I saw a, a, a commentary that, that I thought was very striking, which was, again, just picture the burning bush for a moment. It's this, there's a green bush, and it's completely engulfed in flames. And I'm not sure who says it, but, but one of the commentators points out, don't think for a moment that, that, that there was any even singed parts. In other words, there was no black, there was no charcoal or anything like that. So it's a vibrant green bush engulfed in flame, okay, which makes the imagery a little more striking because I think without thinking about it, I think I filled in some charred pieces in my mind. So there's no, there's no charred pieces, you know, which makes it that much more remarkable. Then I saw from this commentator, I forgot who, but one of the great commentators, that the flame engulfing the bush itself was an angel. So it was a fiery angel. So again, that's like a whole nother sort of thing. So this was like a completely metaphysical, supernatural thing that was going on. Besides just the idea that how could it be on fire and not burn? That, but, but again, it was, the, it was an angel that was actually, you know, right there. So um, we know, and we talked about it again last week, um, a whole talk just more or less on the burning bush, but that other people walked by it. And, and you could think like, you know, today it's sort of like, you know, today all of us, you know, wherever we live, it's sort of more or less compared to, I, I think, probably the, the living in the desert. Um, it's like we all live in the, in the middle of a, a Las Vegas casino. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like bells and things going off and just like it's, it's massive distractions. Like, you know, like you can't even imagine. But then again, remember, people have always been people. And like Rebbe Nachman says, um, that there are sort of three major, um, you know, primary sort of like preoccupations that people have, which are food, sex, and money. And basically, people have had that since the beginning of time. And people have struggled with those things since the beginning of time. And so basically, everyone's been more or less as sophisticated, if you want to use that word, as we are today. They just had less props, you know? But they were still preoccupied with the same, same types of things. So what I'm trying to say is, is that 
On the one hand, you could ask yourself, how could it be that anyone in the desert would walk by the supernatural occurrence, right? And yet, I guess people have always been just as preoccupied whether or not you had billboards and, and all sorts of things surrounding you or not. You know what I mean? It's possible to be sort of like just in your own thoughts in the middle of the desert and walk by an angel surrounding a burning bush and not consuming it, right? So just in order to, just to, to for a moment, just respect the level of inherent preoccupation that all of us are just sort of like, you know, in, in, you know, ingrained with, you know, that this is something that we've been sort of probably battling since, um, since the beginning of time. So anyway, um, again, just because when I first learned this, it was so surprising to me, the burning bush was at Mount Sinai. That's really an important detail because, um, you know, we know that God took the Jews out of Egypt in order to give them the Torah at Mount Sinai. So it's not just he took us out of Egypt and it's sort of like, well, what are we going to do? You know, you know, it's Martin Luther King Day. The stores are closed. All right, let's go to Mount Sinai. That's open. You know, it's not like God, like sort of like had to figure out what to do with us. He took us out of Egypt in order to bring us to Mount Sinai. So the reason why I'm emphasizing that is that you see that the entire bringing us out of Mount Sinai began at Mount Sinai. In other words, the whole mission to take the Jews out of Egypt happened at Mount Sinai with the burning bush, where God said, take them out and then bring them back here. That's what it says. So again, you see the primacy of receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai from, from the very beginning of the taking the Jews out of Egypt, right? So that's, 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 that's important. Okay, so now, one more detail, which is that if you look at the account of the discussion by the burning bush, it seems to go by fairly quickly. Um, it could have seemingly taken a, a few minutes, and that's, that's what it was. And so the Talmud says that it actually, Moshe said no to God for seven days. So that was a seven-day event. So there you see really that Moshe was really struggling with it. And why was he struggling? For, for a number of reasons. One being that God told him, tell them that my name is when Moshe said, well, who should I tell the Jews? You know, the Jews are going to say, who sent you? And God says to him, tell them, um, this name, this, this, this name of Hashem, Asher uh, which is translated as, I will be what I will be, which is, again, a very mysterious name, but um, there's a lot of Torah and Kabbalah on, on what that name actually means. But, um, but the, the Talmud explains very sort of simply um, that just like I'm with the Jews in this exile, in this oppression, I will be with them in future oppressions. And Moshe is like, you want me to tell them that, that this is like, you know, that they got more like Tzuras, more trouble ahead of them after this? So, so then if you actually look at the way it's, it's explained in the, in the Chumash itself, after Hashem refers to himself as Ekiah Asher Ekiah, then he just refers to himself as I will be without the further mention of I will be, right? You know, you know can you imagine, like, you're consoling, let's say, your, your, your kid who's just had their heart broken, right? And you, for the first time, say, and they're crying, and you say, don't worry, it's going to be better, and you know something, you're going to get over this, and, you know, when your husband leaves you later in life, <laughs> it's, 
it's, it's good, that's, you're going to get over that one too. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, it's like, no, it's like, let's just concentrate on, on this one, you know? So, so God apparently thinks that's a good idea. Let's not mention anything in the future. But the point being that um, Moshe, part of this seven-day um, ordeal or, or, or incident was that, was that Moshe was really saying, no, I want this to be the final redemption. And if this isn't going to be the final redemption, then send someone else, right? So, so it was that, that, that's, that's, that's a lot of it. By, by the way, I just finally saw that opinion inside that, that, that Moshe saying that this should be the final redemption. That's from the Akedis Yitzchak. And I didn't, he wasn't quoting anyone else, so that might be who it is. And he was a contemporary of the Abarbanel, and the Abarbanel quotes him quite a bit. This was um, around 1492 in Spain, right? That's more or less when he died. So he lived, you know, toward the end of the, you know, Spanish uh, um, settlement or whatever it was. Okay, so, so this is all setting the stage for, for, the, for, for Moshe actually going to Egypt. And we see that, you know, there were all sorts of issues that, that Moshe had, and, 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 but he, you know, he's, he's doing it and everything like that. And, and of course, you know, one of the first things that we find out about Moshe, as soon as he's introduced in the Torah, it talks about how he's saving a Jew from being beat up by an, an Egyptian taskmaster. You know, so, you know, Moshe had in his bones, I mean, I, I don't want to, God forbid, misrepresent Moshe's frame of mind. Moshe loved the Jewish people and, and, um, and, and, and certainly, you know, felt horrible that they were suffering in this way. So, so he really, you know, wanted to redeem them. It wasn't just, he wasn't just arguing with God, oh, I don't want to do it. He, he really wanted to relieve them from any suffering that they were involved in. Um, so, so that's, that's, uh, that's true too. So, so, so Moshe, Moshe gets there. And, and as soon as he arrives, he makes it worse. And, and now this is starting to get into what I want to talk about today, right? This is just setting the stage for this event. So Moshe gets there, and he tells Paro, like, like you've got to let the Jews go, whatever it is. And, and Paro says, you know, P- Paro's like, you're, you's talking about God? Who's, who's God? Like... You know, I know a lot of deities, but this this Hashem, like who is Hashem? And it's it's interesting because you know the the ancient civilization that the um, that the that the Egyptians built was 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 magnificent, and you know, like elementary school students around the world study it to this day, thousands of years later, and and the things that they built are still you know like the world's greatest tourist attractions, and people can't figure out how they made them to this day. They, they think, certainly aliens made them, right? <laughs> so, I mean, these people were, like, really, like, amazing people. And Faro, Paro, was their leader. So Paro was a really smart guy. And for him to say, who is God, right? Because if you look at the Navi, the, the, the prophet in the, in the Haftorah says that Paro said about himself, I made myself, right? Which is really deep. And, and I think maybe this is the source, perhaps. I heard Reb Shlomo say in the, in the name of the, um, the Beis Yaakov, the, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, that deep, deep, deep down, every single person thinks that they created themselves. Right? That's not just para. 
That's and and I think Reb Shlomo just made a comment that maybe or or maybe this I, I I'm not sure who made this comment, but but maybe that's part of the difficulty of of honoring your parents. Because they say that honoring your parents, you know, is is the hardest mitzvah in the Torah. And maybe because there's a very deep, not rational, not rational thought at all, but deep, deep subconscious idea that, no, I made me. You know? What am I going out of my way for you for? I made me. (laughs) Right? So there is this this thing that Paro had really in, in spades, which is, who's God? And, and, you know, we say, one of the first things that we say in the morning, when we wake up, or that we're sort of like, you know, that, that we should say, that, that it's in the sitter that we're, we're supposed to say, and it's a, a, certainly a great thing to say, is, Reishis Hachmayiras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is the awareness of, of God. Right? And, and meaning to say, you can know a lot of things, but if you don't know God, then, then what do you know exactly? And or, or, said in another way, you might not know hardly anything. But if you know that there's a creator and a guiding force behind things, then already you know a lot. That's, that's wisdom, you know, right, right there. So, so, so Paro hears Moshe come to him. And I, I, I heard... Um, uh, Gedalia Fleer say this Shabbos, and, and it's, I think it's a point that people struggle with um, in the back of their minds, I don't know if they're ever able to articulate it even, was that one of the things that Paro sort of like um, was very cynical about was if God's so great and he made the heavens and the earth and all of the rest, why can't he take the Jews out by himself? What does he need to send someone for? In other words, this must be a sign of the weakness of God. Right, and I think on a on on a here and now level, that the world thinks on some level, just hear me through for a moment, that God is weak. I think people think God is weak, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why, because people think, well, if God is all powerful, why is the world so messed up? I think every single person has this thought in the back of their mind as well, and and God is not weak. That it is, it's the, it's the opposite, what the utmost opposite of that. The point is that we have a role, and God looks to us to be partners with Him in order to do these things. It's not that God can't do it by Himself. God can, God, the, the problem never had to arise to begin with. The, the, the only reason why the problem ever arose to begin with was to give us an opportunity in order to do something to exercise our free will in a divine way so that God could shower more love upon us. That's the only reason why it happened to begin with. Certainly, it could be solved instantaneously. But what were we created for? What are we here for? God created us to be partners with him in order to do these things. So now, Moshe comes, and everything gets worse. And now, if you can put yourself in Moshe's shoes for a moment, you can say, okay, wow, Moshe loves the Jewish people so much. Moshe's wanting this to be the final redemption. Moshe wants the very, very best for everything. He didn't even want to do it himself. And now he comes, and the first thing he does is he makes everything worse. And now the suffering of the Jews is even greater. Because now they've got to make the same impossible-to-meet quota of making bricks, 
plus they have to do all the preparatory work in addition. They've got to get all the straw. It used to be they were provided the straw. Now they've got to get all the straw, which is a huge job in itself, and then use it to make bricks that they couldn't even make that amount of bricks when they were provided the straw by Para. So how are they going to do this? Like They just got an impossible weight added onto another impossible weight, and now they're being whipped like crazy. And it's all because of Moshe, or seemingly Moshe did something, you know, what, what, why didn't it work? So now, you have this, um, this, this little few words in the Torah, which is like, kind of cryptic, because it's sort of like, well, what does it mean exactly? And we'll start to get into sort of like the larger life questions here now. So it says, um, right after, it says, it says now, um, you know, everything got, got a lot worse. And now the, the Jews themselves are complaining to Moshe. They said to him, may Hashem look upon you and judge, for you have made our very scent abhorrent in the eyes of Para and in, in the eyes of his servants to place a sword in their hands to murder us. Right? You know, so, so now, um, you know, Moshe feels even worse. And now here's the key phrase. Um, so this is chapter 5, verse 22. Moshe returned to Hashem. Okay, that's the phrase I want to key in on, but let me just finish the Pasuk. Moshe returned to Hashem and said, my Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? Um, okay. So Moshe returned to Hashem. So, so you know, it, when, when you read that, you can read right, right past it. It seems like the people yell at Moshe, and then Moshe just turns to Hashem and, you know, you know returns to Hashem and says, you know, what's going on? So, so the Ramban fills in at the end of um, uh, his commentary on, on, on Parsha Shmos. He brings some Midrashim that says that Moshe Rabbeinu left Egypt. And, and, and he didn't just leave Egypt. He left for a period, according to which Midrash um, you want to go with, for either three months or a six-month period. So it looks very much like like there's a whole sequence of events here that it's sort of like, okay, par, you know, everyone's complaining, but now Hashem says, and now Hashem is going to say, no, you're going to see how it's going to work out. And now the plagues are going to begin, and now we're really going to start nitty-gritty the process of bringing the Jews out of Egypt. It looks like it's one sequence, but there's a big gap over here of three to six months that takes place. And this is when, you know you get into sort of like the real life kind of like timeline. That life happens in real time. You know, when you watch a movie, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, here's like the date sequence, right? You know, the person's kind of getting dressed, checks themselves in the mirror, and then you cut, and they're at the restaurant together, right? But what happens? The person, you know, starts to, looks okay, finally is happy with the way they look for their date, then they walk outside, then they ring for the elevator, and they wait about three minutes. 
then they get in, then two other people get in, then they stop on a few other floors. <laughs> or really, they wanted to go down, and this elevator's going up, and it's sort of like, all right, you know, then they have to walk to the parking lot, you know, then they got to get their car to start, you know, then they meet an annoying neighbor who wants to chat them up, right? So it's like, you know, it's like a whole thing, then they got to find parking, right? It's not, you go from, you know, you put the finishing touch on your mascara, and then you're ordering French onion soup, right? It's not, that's not life. That's, that's this movie timeline, this edited sequence, which, um, which we've been convinced since, since, since the movie-going experience is so hyper-real. We have somehow, it's somehow sort of rewired our, 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 our brains into thinking that that's reality and that's normal and what I'm going through is not normal and is like weirdly, oddly dull and it's my fault that I don't just, you know, that I'm not just in this constant state of a good time, that there are these down periods, you know? And it's sort of like real time. How do you deal with real time? How do you deal with this idea that Moshe has gone from, you know, this epic sort of like first encounter with Paro, thinking, well, look, God, the master, the creator of heaven and earth sent me on this mission. I've now done it. It's like, now the Jews come out, right? No, 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 no. Now it gets even worse. And Moshe leaves Egypt for, depending on, you know, which medrash you go with from the Ramban, three to six months. So now I want to just, just tell you kind of something personal before we go on to some answers. The way I always understood that up until last night was that, that Moshe basically got totally stressed out and just couldn't deal with just the, the, the collapse of everything. And I loved that Midrash because it, it, it was the most human I've ever seen Moshe presented. You know, like here is a, a human being who just, you know, I mean, how does one person, with, I mean, just think it through, even in the ancient world, right, where they had armies and chariots and swords and bow and arrows, I mean, which were, you know, with expert you know, marksmen, it was the equivalent of people having guns and sharpshooters and snipers. I mean, that, that was all in place, okay? How does one person go into the most storied empire at more or less, I don't know whether it was at its height or not, but certainly in its heyday, right? Um, and one person's going to walk in on a donkey, you know, with his, with his wife and two young kids and free a couple of million slaves? Like, just think about it just on the most basic current events level. How do, that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. I mean, they'll kill you in a second. Maybe, maybe you'll get a few people out. Maybe. But you're going to free like two and a half, it says like two and a half million people left. One person's walking in? H how does that happen? That happened. That actually happened. So, so Moshe like, is sort of like confronted with the reality of the impossibility, more or less, seemingly, of his mission. Meets with instant 
drastic failure, and then leaves Egypt for a period of months. So how do you understand is leaving Egypt? So, like I said, I, I understood it just as just the humanity of Moshe coming through. And, and by the way, I looked again in the Ramban, I read it over again, and he doesn't seem to say why he left necessarily, as far as, far as I understand. So, um, so, now, so now, last night, um, my, my kids are on uh, break now, this, uh, their winter break, and my youngest daughter, Talia, she's uh, 11, she said, oh, you know, I was supposed to study Torah for a half an hour today, and I didn't. You know, this is part of her kind of uh, break, you know, homework, basically. And, and, and by the way, let me just sort of like pause for a moment just to, just to tell you guys something just for the future and, or maybe for right now. See, um, there's, there's, something, there's something that you have to know if you send your kids to Jewish school which is, on the one hand, it's a great thing. They, they learn so much, and, you know, it's, it's phenomenal to see what, like, young kids are, 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 are know and their skills and all sorts of things. Bless you. On, on the other hand, though, there's something, like, really kind of um, potentially extremely negative that happens, and I just want to just make you aware of this for a moment, which is that, which is that learning Torah becomes homework for them. And it becomes a school subject for them. And they're learning, you know, Chumash and like all these like heavenly divine things at the same time that they're learning um, social studies and math and things like that. And, you know, in anyone's mind, forget about a young child's mind, in anyone's mind, there's sort of like a, a sense that, well, it's just all homework. So then I've got... And just like I have a test in math and social studies, and I have to tell you when the Treaty of Versailles was, I also have to tell you what this Rashi means. And it all becomes things that I'm tested on and graded on and homework on and, and all the rest. And so it gets, it gets sucked of any real love, basically. That's why I wouldn't um, go to college to learn this, the Jewish studies. Because it takes yeah. away, it becomes a college subject instead of like, yeah. Yeah. So that that even happens on a on a on an elementary school level, and and, on, and certainly on a high school level, and so that's why it's like really important for the parents somehow to 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 express their their love of this to the child, because don't expect that that's going to come through um, at a, at a, from the school, and and by the way. Don't be afraid or think that somehow it's um, hypocritical or, or wrong to bribe your children. <laughs> you know, that, that a, a young child, if they see, wow, if I do well in this or whatever it is, you'll buy me this present or you'll give me this money or you'll take me here is, 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 is a good thing, actually, when, when a child is young. Because what that does is it shows them that the parents consider it so important. In other words, that's, that's viewed in, in terms of their emotional intelligence as an expression of love from the parents. So for a parent to think, no, 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 the, the ideal is to do it, you do it for no reward. 
That's, that's, that's true, but that's a more sophisticated level. And that comes much later in life. A kid understands, you know, like candy and love and prizes, like all that's kind of mixed <laughs> together, you know? So, so that, that, that should be, that you're not doing a disservice to them. You're doing, you're doing something positive for them, you know? Um, and grandparents can do that too. You know, this is for, for everyone, you know? Because um, it shows the kids that it's not just another um, uh, subject in school, but that this has a heightened level of importance, and, 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 and therefore it's worthy of that. Okay, so now with this in mind, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm tucking my daughter in, and she says, she says, oh, well, since, um, since I didn't learn my half hour today, maybe instead of a bedtime story, we can talk some Torah. Right? And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm twist my arm. <laughs> you know, like, you, you live for a moment like that, you know? So, so I'm thinking, okay, so I said, okay. So, um, so, so, and then I start to tell her everything that I just told you. And I said, um, I said that, uh, so Moshe goes and it, and it makes everything worse, and then he just leaves Egypt because he's, you know, not giving up necessarily, but he just, and and then my daughter says, oh, well, no, what what he did was, he went to the back to the burning bush, to ask Hashem, what should I do now? And I'm like, he, he did? <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, she's under her covers. I'm like, wait here. <laughs> and I go down to the library where I have my books, you know, and I pull out something and I see that that's the rash bomb. The, the rash bomb, like my 11-year-old is telling me the rash bomb. That, that, yeah, he went to the burning bush because... So how did I start this? How did I start? Where do you go when you don't know where to go? What do you do when you don't know what to do? So he went back to God. That's the answer. He went back to God and he said, Hashem, what am I supposed to do? Right? So that's the, that's, you know, like, like, like I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, are you, are you running from God or are you running to God? Right? And, and the reality is, is that they're both kind of the same. Because if you're running from God, God's everywhere. You're still running to God. You know? But what's in your heart at that moment? So, so now this, now let's get to the Let's now develop the next point, okay, which stems from here. So that's, that's point number one, which is that when you hit that brick wall, then, then that's, that's when you go to God, right? Hopefully we're going to God every step of the way, but especially when we hit the brick wall. Okay, so now let's, let's ask ourselves, what's a brick wall? All right? So... So Hashem 
says to, uh, I mean, rather, Moshe says to Hashem, so now it says, now, now we, let's revisit this, chapter 5, verse 22, Moshe returned to Hashem. So you see there's a hole in those three words. You, you see why you have to learn the Torah with the, with the commentators? Like, who would have known Moshe returned to Hashem, that that meant that Moshe left for a period of months and he went to the burning bush, all this stuff. Okay, so Moshe returned to Hashem and said, you know, Hashem, God, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you sent me? From the time I came to Paro to speak in your name, he did evil to this people, but you did not rescue your people. Right? And, uh, and, and, and Hashem says back to Moshe, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. So, so again, this is now a period of three to six months later. And, you know, you talk about movie time again. Like, that's a long time to sit in the desert, you know, thinking about how everyone is getting whipped and abused even worse than they were before you showed up. It's a long time to, uh, you know, to hate yourself, basically, you know? And I use that phrase because, again, just to tell you something that I learned yesterday from uh, Rabbi Gedalia Fleer, he said something beautiful, you know? If, if, if you hear this phrase, I'm not saying this about Moshe, but just in general, you know, just when we get into, like, really tight spots in our life, this phrase, I hate myself, sounds like 1,000% negative. Like, like, that sounds like the most negative thing you could say, really, about yourself. I hate myself, right? So I was so impressed because he said, no, 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 that actually could be a very positive phrase. It's like, wow, how, this is like going to be some fancy footwork coming up. Like, how do you make that into a positive <laughs> phrase, you know? So he said, because I... My essence, which is I, which I know is good and has so much potential, hate myself, the outer manifestation of what I am, how I am manifesting in this world. So I, which I know to be inherently good, hate my outward actions. And so I hate myself actually can be a positive expression of wanting to change for the good, right? Do, do you hear? Like that, that, that I thought was like pretty interesting. So, so now, Moshe Rabbeinu, who I think, um, I don't want to, you know, add, add too much here, but uh, I'll just say if, if I were Moshe Rabbeinu at this moment, um, and I think, and let's relate it all to times in our own lives where really we feel as though we've hit a brick wall. The, the temptation is to feel at this point abandoned by God, right? You feel like, okay, God is no longer with me. God has just kind of gone away. And what, what's so, and it's not true is, 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 is the point. And, and, and there's a bigger idea here, because Paro says to Moshe, now I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. In other words, this, there was, you were never outside of a plan. 
You were never outside of a relationship between, between the two of us, like God is saying, so to speak, to Moshe. Now we're going to kick in the next step of the plan. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that in our own lives, when we encounter difficulties or, or disappointments, the temptation is for us to feel as though God has abandoned us and there is no plan. But you may not know what your next move is. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a next move in store for you. That's a, that's a, to me, that's a paradigm shift. Because if you can understand that even if you have no idea what's happening next, you have to understand that you're still very much within a plan from God's point of view. And that God is no less guiding you even if you don't know what your next move is. It just hasn't been revealed to you yet. So then we return back to our question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Right? And the answer is don't stop doing good. Don't stop doing good. Remember, just one of the, I think, all-time great, great couple of thoughts. One I heard in the name of the Gera Rebbe, when Hashem said to Avraham Avinu, lech lecha, like, go, right? Like, or don't stop moving, right? Go to Israel, don't stop moving, meaning just keep doing good. That he wasn't just talking to Avraham, he was talking to every Jew for all time. Don't stop moving. Don't stop. Like, even if you don't know where you're going, don't stop. Keep doing good. And then, just, just one of my all-time, all-time favorite stories, which I think just addresses everything. The, the, uh, the, the Rishner Rebbe, um, one of his sons was the, uh, the, the Reb David of Chernovitz, and who, who became, you know, a, a Rebbe himself. And he was a young boy, and he was outside of his father's study, where his father was, you know, having yechidas, having, you know, uh, meetings with different people, giving them, you know, blessings, advice, things like this. So someone, it just looks like, boy, he's really at the end. I mean, this guy's in really rough shape. And he goes in to see the Rebbe, and he comes out, and it's like his face is all lit up. He's like shining. And so the young, the, the young son of the originer says to him, what did my father tell you? And the man says, he said, Hashem will help. And the boy says, what are you going to do until Hashem helps? Mm-hmm. And the man's face just drops. And then he says to him, go back to my father and ask him. And so he goes back in, and he comes back out, and his face is shining again. Mm-hmm. He says, what did my father say? And he says, he said, until Hashem helps, Hashem will help. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, so what we have in these two teachings, one from the Ger Rebbe, one from the Rishner Rebbe, are we can't stop doing good. We have to keep on going. We have to keep our lech lecha going. And we also have to understand that we're within a plan from God that until God helps, God is helping. Right? Because we can't, we can't listen. Let's go back to the date scene in the movie, right? You, you finish fixing up, right? You, you look good. You're happy with the way you look. You leave the house. And then... Who says, who says when you, when, when you leave the house, like, 
like the door has to lock. Right? You don't, you're not going to leave your door open, right? Who says the door has to lock? Who, who says that when you, that the, that the, that the, that there's not a, that the elevator is working or that there's not a fire, God forbid, in the stairwell or that your car is going to start? See, all, all of these things, you see, th- these are all in the category of our prayers are constantly being answered. We're just not praying them. Right? God is answering prayers that we're not even praying. Because every time you go and try to start your car, really, ideally, you should say, God, please make my car actually work. Because who says my car has to work? So when your car does work and you don't pray it, you're, the prayer that you never prayed was actually being answered. So our prayers are being answered all the time, but we're just not praying them. So until God saves you, until God helps you, right? God will help you. All the things along the way, all those little moments that we would call, you know, editable moments from the time I leave the apartment to the time when I'm ordering dinner, every single one of those things, which seems like downtime, every single breath that we take in our life, is God actually saving us? Is God actually manifesting his presence and his goodness in our lives? So this idea, and this is when we really have to be a little bit more in touch and a little bit more humble, by the way, much more humble, because we strike a deal and we structure a relationship with God, which is really very arrogant if you think about it, which is, God, you know, there's this thing that I really want, right? I want a kid, I want to get married, I want a job, I want this thing, I want that thing, whatever it is, we all have like our primary immediate goal and we want that thing, right? And we kind of say, you know, God, until you give me that thing, I'm not saying we verbalize this, but a lot of us sort of express this in in terms of our relationship to God, in our emotionality. Until you give me that, God, you're not really in my life. Let's be serious, right? Because you could give me that thing and you're not giving me that thing, so you're not really in my life. Come on. Meanwhile, every breath, every step, every revolution of blood in our circulatory system, every successful synapse firing in our brain is like a direct like gift and kiss and a hug from God, you know? And we're saying, well, you know, until you give me this, God, really, come on, let's be serious. Right? All right, let's stop there. Okay, that concludes the talk, and here are some questions and answers. Yes, sir. I was able to get so many just repeatedly through the Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually raised that point. Yeah, 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 part one and part two. Awesome. Yes, No, it's it's a really good question because um, because all of these stories happen and there's a reality to them, and you have to ask yourself like, could I just walk into the White House? Could I just walk into the Kremlin? Like, let's be serious. Like, how does that happen? And <clears throat> I just, thank you. 
I just skimmed over it, so I can't give you a detailed answer. But I can so, but I, I can tell you that um, <clears throat> they talk about um, that it, that it was difficult getting an appointment. You know, when the task, when the um, when the overseers of the Jews tried to get an appointment to address their issue with Kara, that that it was hard for them to get in and, and hard for them to get an appointment. And in fact, not only that, but they talk about how. Um, when Moshe first walked in, he was supposed to walk in with all of the elders. And it was supposed to be a whole team of people walking in. <clears throat> and, you know, yeah, this is when Moshe is approaching Param. And it says that the, um, you know, if you look at the, the, the kind of the movie sets, and I don't know how accurate they are. Obviously, people are just sort of, you know, speculating and imagining. But they're also imagining based on architectural ruins and things like that. But those things are like, the, you know, the ceilings are like, you know, 50 feet high and there are columns and there's old torches and scary things and stuff like that. It probably did look something like that. I would imagine it would. So when people, when the elders got there and it was supposed to be this whole team, they, they were terrified. They were terrified. It's like we're walking into our death. Like, what are we doing? You know, and there was all sorts of like black magic and idol worship things, you know, like humans with alligator heads and all sorts of like creepy, weird stuff going on, you know? And they said that they were like masters of like black magic and all sorts of things, you know? Because it says that the Pharaoh's necromancers, like his assistants, could duplicate a lot of the plagues, but then at a certain point they couldn't. It just became too divine, right? And by the way, I heard from Rabbi David Aaron that that's one of the reasons why the whole thing takes place in Egypt. Because they were masters of black magic. Had Moshe gone to um, a lesser place, more of a, you know, a lesser kingdom, they would have said, well, your black magic looks pretty good here, but, you know, you haven't dealt with, like, the, the masters of black magic. So the whole point was that, 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 that Moshe should show the entire world that this was, was, was above, this was something divine that was, you know, obliterated what they had. But the point that I'm making is, is that the elders got scared and turned away. And it says that as a, I don't want to say a punishment because that's the wrong word, but as a direct consequence of their going away, they weren't able to go up to Moshe uh, on Mount Sinai. Like basically, had they had the guts, and I'm not judging them, believe me, I'm sure I would have been the leader of the back running. But had they had the courage to actually approach Pharaoh with Moshe at that moment, they would have gotten the blessing of actually been able to been on Mount Sinai during the revelation of the Torah. So all of this is just not an exactly an answer to your question because I have to research it some more. But, um, but yeah, sort of like the, the actual logistics are dealt with also. And that's one of the great things about Torah in general is that it's simultaneously operating on all levels, on the most practical and on the most mystical. You know, like... Um, <clears throat> The example that I, I, I always think of is, um, is that there's a line in the Psalms that says um, something like, I'm paraphrasing, King David says, God, let my whole mouth be filled with your praises. Right? That's a very poetic idea, like, like, like my whole potential should be manifest. Right? But, but they, the rabbis learn from that also, that don't have food in your mouth when you're praying to God. <laughs> Because if you have like you're chewing gum or if I'm eating some steak, my mouth is not filled with praises. So in other words, again, you see how one thing 
is operating on the most nitty-gritty practical level, but at the same time has very sort of mystical implications as well. You know, so that's true with the events, too. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, thank you so much, Dr. <coughs> oh, I was sure, yeah. trying at the end, oh. everything he said, I was like, oh. and then he yeah. stopped, and I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> when, yeah. when, uh, when he was out, out, down and out for three to six months, Right. Uh, you mentioned something very quickly, you sort of skipped over it, uh, that he was um, hating himself for, for a while. And I feel like there was a... Well, I don't... Yeah, and I, I just want to... Yeah. I, if I was Moshe at that point, yeah, yeah. I don't know what Moshe was doing. Okay, yeah. okay. So let's say he was in a down, right? Right. And sometimes we need a few minutes with Hashem, and sometimes right. we need... Like, I remember there was a dark period in my life, it was like a year and a half that I just felt so anxious and right. I was praying constantly right. and I felt like I wasn't getting an answer. Right. right. So maybe part of it was the way I was praying. Maybe it was that I wasn't doing as the good that I could right. have with my potential. Right. But I really feel like those two things are connected. Yeah. And I'm wondering right. if we're, or maybe I, the third thing is I wasn't listening to the, I wasn't stopping to listen because there's right. three steps to prayers, right. right? Right. But my question is, if he had listened properly, gotten it, maybe his ego out of the way, and I'm not trying to hurt Moshe Rabbeinu in any way or speak less than her about it, right. I'm just trying to learn from his right. actions. Right. Is it possible that if he had just had a little more Amuna in that moment, right. it might have been less time? In other words, right. it could have been, like maybe Talia speculated, right. that like, oh no, he was just talking to Hashem, and if he had... What I'm saying is, because it's hard for me to justify right. whether it's Hashem's will or his free will or Hashem using him as a right. uh, clea to do right. this, that six months of my people were you know, chained up, doing work right. that made no sense, and yeah. butchered more. You know what right. I'm saying? And I do. can we yeah. learn that if, if you're doing all the right things and you have enough faith, it could be less time. That's my question. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's a, no, it's a, it's a great question and it, it really is what I wanted to discuss today and okay. and the, 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 the answer is I ultimately I, I, I don't know I don't know the answer okay. to that I mean it's it's sort of like um, it's sort of like what, what I was suggesting just the one piece that I was trying to add was that at that moment where it looks like just everything is falling apart and nothing is happening we shouldn't forget that we're still in a very close relationship, right? Every breath, right? And that there is still a plan for us, even if we're not aware of it, it doesn't mean there isn't a plan, there is a plan. So that we shouldn't feel so dislocated, you know, existentially dislocated. We should understand that we're still very much part of the plan, but we, we don't know what part it, it, where, it's, where it is, you know? It's like, I, I don't know if you were here for this, but, but I wrote a song one time, and actually, I'd, I'd love for this actually to be put to actual music, okay? So, <laughs> no obligation. But I will, I, I will sing it in a, in a nursery rhyme, like, which is not, well, I'll just say the lyrics. Because, you know, I know real musicians, once they hear a, a bad tune, it's hard for them to get that out of their head. So, but the lyrics are, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. <laughs> right? So it's sort of like... It's, it's like for us not to, n not to think because we don't know, no obligation, no obligation, that there's, that there's no, um, that because we don't know doesn't mean that we aren't being, you know, guided. 
right? And, and that there sh- should be some solace, some comfort from that. Um, but, but, um, but more to your point, you know, I'll put it in a very sort of um, fancy way, but, but it's, it's, it's a real thing. How do, how do I fix my future? In other words, here I am in the middle of this, but I, I want to go in a positive way. How do I fix my future? And could it be that it's going to be three months or six months no matter what? Maybe. I don't know the way God runs the world. Maybe. And maybe that's what it's going to be no matter what. Could it be that I could get a schus, a merit, through a positive action that hastens my personal redemption? Maybe, absolutely. Certainly, that's how we should operate. Yeah. But, but not in a panicked way. That, that's the thing. In other words, what, what I would, if I were to sort of like rewrite your, your, your horrible you know, little episode there, I would say to try to remove the anxiety from it to the extent that you can. In other words, in other words um, it's sort of like there, there, there is something very uncomfortable about not knowing. Inherently uncomfortable about not knowing. But at the same time, if we know that we're still in the embrace of God, it can make it a little easier. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's that thought that I don't know because I've been abandoned. That's the yeah. that's the road to like yeah. madness, basically. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe the it was speeding up the idea that went worse because there was a certain level that it needed to drop to, but it's it, instead of pulling it out to a longer time, the same amount of trouble, it was put into a shorter. It helped by putting it into a shorter. Right. A little more intensity. Exactly, and that's and that that what Miriam is saying is is one of the um, things that they say that the intensity. See, if you look in the Torah, it looks like um, it looks like the uh, it, it, it's a little bit confusing. At one point, God says to Abraham, "Your children are going to be slaves for four hundred years." At another point, when they're when they're taken out of Egypt, the Torah says. And the Jews had been oppressed for 210 years. So what is it? Was it 400 years? Was it 210 years? So the, 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 the point is, is that you, and then another point, I think it says 200 years. So it's where do you count the beginning of the servitude? So it is actually 400 years from the birth of Yitzchak. Okay, so that's, that's one formulation. Another formulation of the, of the hardcore servitude, that was 210 years. But what they say is that at the very end, God made it even worse, even worse, because he wanted to sort of like get them out quicker. So he squeezed in the amount of suffering, you know, extra in order to get them out faster. And that apparently is, as uncomfortable as that sounds, that is one of the ways apparently God guides the world. And in fact, this is something that I actually wanted to discuss earlier. Um, the... Uh, um, I'm not sure who brings it up. I think it's Rabbeinu Hananiel brings it up that there, the, the, the Talmud talks about Esurim um, Ba'ava, uh, which is sort of like afflictions that are given to a person from a standpoint of love. So, what, is, what does that mean? And the example that they give, and I never saw this example, I guess this is maybe the example, I don't know. But 
right before God rained down the manna, so that like the bread from heaven, this incredible gift, like this totally miraculous gift. And by the way, you know, they say, the Chassam Sofer brings, what blessing did they make over the man? Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. Right? Like, which is wild if you think about it, you know? So, so, um, so right before God brought down the manna, he made them totally hungry and starving. Why? Because he was about to give them this unbelievable thing. So, so that's called Isurim Ba'ava, that he, this, this pain that they were experiencing, right, was actually given them from a standpoint of divine love because he was about to shower them with this unbelievable thing. So this is another way that God leads the world. And again, it's very uncomfortable for us, but it's, it's really, but we can deal with it much better if we understand that we're within a plan, you know? If, we, if we're constantly thinking, now I'm off the tracks, right? And I'm, I've, I've severed my relationship with God. Then everything that is in the state of the unknown becomes almost unbearable. But if we understand that there is such a thing as A, not knowing but still being guided, B, suffering but still being loved for the next thing that's about to happen, right? Then we can get through life much better. Like, for instance, it's a whole long story. I'm not going to tell you the story, but I'm just going to tell you the very end of the story. And this is a story that, that, that Reb Shlomo was told while on a Shabbos while he was still at Lakewood from the chief rabbi of... Tehran, I think it was, who was a Breslover, no, it was a Belzer Chassid. Okay, so like, 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 literally every detail that I just mentioned makes no sense whatsoever. Like, that's like, like a series of non sequiturs. But, but anyway, so the, the, the chief rabbi told him that when you tell this story to people, you have to hold their hand while you tell their sto- this story. So I'm not going to tell you the story, but it's the very end of this story, which is that, um, this person was, was, was really about to be, like, killed by a, a landowner. And that was true, right? And the Chose of Lublin, who's, you know, one of the greatest Hasidic masters and could see your previous lives and all the rest, said to him, you know what, let me hide you because this guy is going to try to kill you, right? And, of course, he gets, he gets beaten and all the rest and... Um, and, but then it all works out for the best. And, and the Chos of Lublin's Rebbe, um, the Noam Elimelech, told the same person that it's going to work out for you. And, and in the end, it does work out for him, even though uh, he also gets beat up pretty badly beforehand. So the very end of the story is this. The, the Noam Elimelech says to the Chos of Lublin, Remember, the Chosa said something bad's going to happen, and the Noam Elimelech said something good is going to happen, right? And they were both right, right? So the, the Noam Elimelech says to the, Chose, says to the Chose of Lublin, his student, he says, you saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad thing that was going to happen, but I saw the good thing after the bad thing. Right? And that's... That's one of these stories that we have to live with, even if you don't know the story, just the, the teaching from the story, right? You saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad thing that was going to happen, but I saw the good thing after the bad thing. 
right? Okay. Yeah.